took you so long, bitch. Like, damn. Well, you know I had to do my hair. You always doing your goddamn hair. I told you I was on the way 15 oh minutes ago, and I okay. told you when I was I'm pulling out. I'm here now, though. I'm here now, though. You trying to get this money? Girl, hell yeah, I'm trying to get this money. Shit. All right, let's get this money, What's good, everybody? Welcome to the Forbidden Technique Podcast on the Fightside Podcast Network with myself, your host, Silas Mine, my co-host, as always, Christian Reynolds. Uh, the streak of two men being here to terrorize the intros is finally over, and we can just get straight on into this uh, pretty goddamn good first ever UFC event in Paris, France. Uh, the French crowd in particular were having a fucking great time with this card, not just because pretty much all of the French guys did really well, but just uh, I think France being a big like like sports country who've been waiting for a long time for MMA to be made legal there and for them to have some big successful French fighters to, to really get behind. Uh, it was just a great atmosphere for the event. And it was a, a heavyweight banger for the ages in the main event. Uh, Cyril Garn versus Taito Ivasa. Yeah, I was wrong. Fair enough. Cyril Garn knocked out Taito Ivasa in the third round. You weren't that wrong. I wasn't that wrong because because like and in you know all all of the people who said that Garn was just going to like easily pick Taito Ivasa apart and and Taito was just going to follow him around just whiffing and just walking into straight shots were ultimately correct. But only o- only uh, half right. Uh, yeah, but only only after the fight got into a sloppy banger, and also after a round where they, you know, in 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 the first round where they just had five minutes of like kind of neutral space kickboxing exchanges, tied to Ivasa did just fine and like probably won that round. Um, but then it was in the second round that he uh, caught Siragan just leaping backwards out of the pocket in a straight line and just clanged him with a big old looping right hand. Looked like the fight was over then and there. But uh, Siragon has just remarkable durability and recovery and was able to get back to it. And Tuivasa overthrew a left hook so hard that he was like, like, like bent over, like trying to keep his balance and just like ate a savage body kick and then Garn chased him back, like just spamming body shots and then Tuivasa clipped him with a left hook, and it was it was just a wacky fucking sequence of of shit happening. Uh, like most heavyweights, just don't have the wherewithal to like survive exchanges and not capitulate when they're getting hurt like that. So it was cool. Um, but in the end, as we said, it was actually just Garn's attritional work and superior conditioning that won him the fight. Because after that exchange and all of the big body shots that Ty took. And Ty was just out of the fight. He was so fucking tired and just got more and more sloppy and uh, just just kept eating shots to the body. And, you know, I've given Cyril Garn shit about his defense, but he tries his best. And Taito Ivasa kind of doesn't have defense. He has an okay di- like sense of distance, but once he's in range, he's just there to be hit, particularly like, 
to the body and when he, when he's tired. You know, he did okay just like just like pulling back out of low kicks and stuff in the first round, but uh yeah, as the fight went on, he was just like walking into jabs and front kicks to the tummy and just keeping himself in the fight by swinging big old fucking bombs whenever Cyril Garn like tried to get a little bit too frisky and go for the finish. But uh, yeah, and then then in the third round, like Taito Ivasa just uh, put himself way out of position, swinging some big old hooks, and Garn just like pivoted off and punched him a bunch of times, and he fell over. Yeah, and, and something I, something I want to mention about Cyril Gaon is that though his defense isn't great in a like a vacuum, it is actually really good for what it is because he mostly just relies on his insane reaction speed to get himself out of trouble, and he's really fast, so he can capitalize on his reactions really well. So he gets out of the way of things, and he has good eyes. So a lot of his deficits defensively are kind of masked by him being able to just react to things well uh, which isn't the ideal defense because he actually did get caught when Ty like added a layer to it and, and got the knockdown uh, but you know immediately upon getting hurt he he like got his eyes back on the target and then started defending and got himself into a good position and then Opposed to what a lot of people were expecting, he actually like lashed out and attacked Ty back, kind of doing what Ty does to people, which is get hurt and then hurt people. Uh, he kind of did it back to him, like he used his own move on him. And then Ty, of course, went to do that and actually landed a few nice counters at some point, just like winging bombs at Gon, Gon getting a little, little too overexcited. But Gon's chin on the front foot, I feel, is a lot better than his chin on the back foot, mostly just due to the way that his feet are positioned. When he moves back, he kind of gallops, whereas when he's going forward, he's very planted and, like, in his stance. Yeah, I mean, when he got dropped, he was levitating. Yeah, like, that, that'll that happen to you. It doesn't even matter how good your chin is or how good your eyes are. You just can't react if you're midair because you can't change your trajectory while you're in the air. It's like the, you know, in Call of Duty, where if someone jumps, you shoot them where they're going to land. That, but in real life. It's, it's pretty neat, uh the way that Gon got dropped because, you know, Ty is a crafty fighter. He's at least craftier than people give him credit for on their average. So seeing him actually like set up uh, a knockdown was pretty, pretty nice. And I think the fight was way more lopsided odds wise than it should have been. There was good reason to think that Ty had a good chance in the fight. And it, it wasn't like a, I don't even think it was a meme pick at all to be picking him. I think it's just a valid assumption that he, he could have a, anyone a, else picking him. Yeah. And I find that weird because he is a very good fighter and I don't know. I kind of, in my heart felt like Ty had what it took to win. And then he, sh- he like proved that he did have what it took to win. He yeah. Just I'm just glad that really- he, you know, I didn't look that stupid. He, he showed that he absolutely deserved to be in there. Yeah. And you know, uh, when Ty was on that just miserable losing streak a few years back, none of us had any reason to expect that he'd get to this kind of point where, you know, he's fighting someone coming off of a, a title fight and, you know, getting close to that picture. And, he, you know, he's still young. He's he's just, he's the new Derek Lewis. He's going to hang around for a long time. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see Ty Tuivasa fight for a heavyweight title at some point in his career. And Cyril Gaon, <laughs> clearly very good. Um, You know, the, you, you can critique like really specific pedantic technical flaws about 
what he does, but he he knows what he's doing, and he's extremely athletic, and he's actually not that experienced, and he clearly has like some idea about how he's trying to develop as a fighter, and you you can't say that this fight was boring. So, you know, maybe, maybe let's let's uh, leave Cyril Gunn alone. He's a good fighter. He's going to be around for a while. I agree. I, I think that Cyril Gunn is a really good fighter in the sense that. Uh, a lot of people are acting like he's a, a talent that's on the level of you know elite people at other weight classes, which is not the case. But he is about as good as someone that's unranked at UFC bantamweight. If you know, is someone that has that style. Like if you're athletic enough to maintain it, his style would work at other weight classes. And, and even his tactics and application of those. He's a very skilled fighter. He looks a lot better than he is, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have the potential to become as good as people think he is. Yeah, I made he's very new into his career. I made some kind of comparisons about towards uh, Edson Barboza versus Justin Gaethje last week. Yeah, and yeah, I mean that kind of held up. You know, even Ty even landed the the exact sequence that that Justin KO'd Edson with like several times. It's just like gone has a ridiculous chin. And the fact that it was heavyweight kind of just uh, amplified the dynamic to where the uh, Justin Gaethje in this equation was more finishable than actual Justin Gaethje against actual Edson Barbosa. Yeah, and for what it's worth, I think if Taito Vasa's body was trans or brain was transplanted into a one forty five or one fifty five, they'd have a pretty good matchup against Edson. Well, so, like, you also they, uh, compared this fight to... Um, yeah, I was about to get to that. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like, like, and while we're on the topic of weird weight differences, this fight was basically Corey Sanhagen versus John Lineker, except John Lineker doesn't body shot in this matchup. It, it really, it's just if you, like, pare it down and be like, okay, what if Corey Sanhagen only jabbed? And what if uh, John Lineker only tried to do what he was doing to the body, to the head, and just tried to cut him off on exits? Yeah, I and mean, it's if you, you made it heavyweight. Exactly. It's if you made it heavyweight, so, you know, everyone just gets hurt more. Yeah, and I think Taito Ivasa kind of proves that heavyweight is cool in a way because it's the only weight class where your objective skill set matters in a different way. It doesn't matter less. Like, you can be just as good of a heavyweight as you can in other weight classes in theory. But the fact that you can just have power as an equalizer to, to set up your game around an entire style of finding one moment to hurt someone and then just sealing them off, like Taito Ivasa, his style could work at other weight classes. Like, you just do low kicks and time them well and do counters and have bad defense and a great chin. But his chin is fantastic, but it's not good enough to, to be able to eat shit consistently at heavyweight. That's why he's been finished a couple times. So, at other weight classes, his style, it could work, but he wouldn't get knocked out and he would go to decision a bunch. But because of them being at heavyweight, and that's just how, like, weight dynamics work out, uh, he's able to be a really exciting fighter, whereas a lot of people that are like Taito Ivasa who actually have a lot to, to give from a strategic perspective or, like, a, an analytical perspective, he's actually he's a very good fighter. You just don't see them get to the UFC because they're, like, a, a 155-er who just kind of loses decisions all the time. So heavyweight's cool in its own way, and people that are overly down on it are boomer losers. Yeah. I like to tie to Ivasa. Let's let's get him some time off till he's back to drinking beer out of shoes and then he can knock out Chris Dalkhouse. Sounds like a good time. Oh fuck that. He'd kill Dawkins. 
Yeah, and then uh, Robert Whitaker easily beat Marvin Vittori by doing one-two right high kick. Yeah, because um, Robert Whitaker does not be losing to plodding southpaw wrestle boxes. Uh, you know, pe- people were making something of just like Marvin Vittori being very large, but like Rob has absolutely no problem navigating huge muscle men who were just technically way worse than him. It's- yeah, that combined with the fact that he was not as much smaller as I was expecting. Yeah, Rob's not a small middleweight. He's very dense. No. And um, Vittori had some okay ideas. Rob knows how to jab a southpaw, but Marvin Vittori being like relatively educated with just the lead hand fight did limit the volume of Rob's jab a bit. And also Vittori had some good ideas about like just how to counter Rob's blitzes and the way he'll put himself out of position when he's really overextending. Like he landed a good knee as as Rob was like kind of out over his feet uh, uh, doing a big blitz in the first round. But uh, down the stretch, uh, Rob just kind of realized he could just throw the right hand and the right high kick whenever he wants w- without even like really having to set it up off of the jab and it was it was like it was landing a lot um and like also just like really limiting Vittori's left hand probably cuz he wanted to keep his guard up and also just i think his arm probably got pretty fucked up from just it getting kicked really hard yeah i think most of Vittori's success defensively stems from him coming from kings which is historically a very southpaw heavy gym and they're all southpaw body kickers and what's the main thing that a southpaw kicker wants to worry about it's the lead hand so he's able to shut down a lead hand better than most southpaws that rob's fought but robert whitaker though he has a very standard uh like setup for his entire game it's it'll work against every southpaw it doesn't matter how good you are at southpaw he's really good at working that style like he knows how to do a one two right high kick and and pin a southpaw's arm to their head and and kind of stop any rear hand offense from coming while also getting his own offense off. And, you know, he'll fuck your arms up with it. He's very versatile in that regard. But I think this fight showed that he doesn't really have the urgency to be getting title shots in the way that he wants. Like, if he finished Vittori, he would have gotten a title shot guaranteed, and there would be no chance that uh, he would get leapfrogged after the Pereira fight, regardless of win or lose. Uh... Like, because if Pereira wins, they definitely give it to Izzy at this point. But had Rob knocked out Marvin Vittori, they'd be like, "Oh shit, let's give Pereira Robert Whitaker." Yeah, it's the kind of statement he's got to make if he wants to get back to to another title shot at this point. Yeah, that's my main criticism of the fight. Other than just keep beating everyone really easily, which I'm I'm sure we'll also get him back there, you know, before too long. You know, if he just beats Paulo Costa now. You know, depending on what happens with the middleweight title picture in the near future, he could just beat Paulo Costa, and there probably wouldn't be a- anyone else to like give a title shot at middleweight. And so, depending on what happens with this next fight, mm-hmm. we don't know, and we'll talk it, about it. Was, it. And it was a good <laughs> fight, but it's hard for me not to be a little down on Whitaker when against actually the easiest matchup I can imagine for him in theory, he still 
wasn't able to get the finish. And Vittori is historically really difficult to finish. And I think over five, he would have finished him. But I think it, had he hunted the finish a little bit more, he could have gotten to it because he was at basically no danger of being finished because Vittori, despite his size, is not a hitter. He he doesn't really have the mechanics to be hurting people. He's, his timing isn't that of someone that's typically a danger for Robert Whitaker. Couldn't take Rob down for love nor money. No, and, and Rob's defense uh, is good enough to where he's not going to be getting caught by Marvin Vittori's type of counter, which is more just get you on the fence and then kind of throw away a, a jab to get to the outside angle and throw a straight, which is what he did to Hermanson. Yeah, and even but then Vittori... He's just too wise to that. He's going to he, take away your offense. Yeah, and even then Vittori essentially would have been landing, like, re- relying on decking Rob with a single shot because you know Rob has uh, generally, you know, he's been famous for his like tactics in terms of recovering from getting badly hurt in a fight and stopping himself from getting finished. Yeah, so, his his resilience and uh, ability to fight from a deficit have been like major key factors in his career arc and individual fight arcs. Like Robert Whitaker got fucked up really badly by Yola Romero early or in the like the later rounds, but managed to kind of get his way back into it tactically and make the rounds close enough to be a 10-9 or barely, you know, do enough to scare off Yoel, one of the hardest people to scare off in the sport. So, and then narratively, he you know, he got fucked up a lot at welterweight, and then he goes up to middleweight, and it's really just his perseverance and not letting himself get de- dejected from having such a difficult intro to the UFC that he was able to become the champion at some point. So, you know, I think it says something about uh, the expectations that you put on Bobby Knuckles that you feel like it was an underperformance that he just really easily beat probably the third best middleweight in the world. He's or well, top five anyway. Yeah, it, it's he's definitely a fantastic fighter, but I think it shows uh, a strategic limitation for him that he can't just go harder to try and win this and the also the fact that he was insecure about not getting the finish yeah he he got he said something like hey guys i hit hit hard hard, honestly yeah i hit hard guys please believe me even though i never finish people because i don't have urgency believe that you hit hard rob you definitely hit hard no no one's saying that he's at his most dangerous whenever people are hurting him that's why he was able to People miss it, but he dropped Yoel with an elbow at some point in the second fight in the clinch, and Yo- Yoel just kind of played it off as him shooting for a takedown when he was not shooting for a takedown. He got dropped by an elbow in the clinch. Yeah, he fucked Good up. Day. He fucked up uh, Cannoneer really hard in the third round after Cannoneer hurt him in a fight that he was otherwise kind of just like clinically dominating with jabs. Yeah, and then Rob gets hurt by a jab after that, and then immediately gets in on Cannoneer's hips and starts uh, like just stifling Cannoneer's offense. Robert's a very smart fighter, and the criticisms I'm making of him are not uh, degrading that, but I think that it shows his strategic limitation, the fact that he couldn't even throw a body kick to make it a more consistent finishing uh, approach against Vittori. Just throw a body kick, Because if he just threw a body... Yeah, if he threw a right body kick at some point during this matchup, his easiest... Mat- or not necessarily his easiest matchup, but the most simple to win matchup for him because it's straightforward. You just one two high kick. If he just added the body kick, which shouldn't be a, a deficit in his game, you should be able to throw a body kick if you're at a championship level 
and he can. Like, if you've seen him throw body kicks, he just... It wasn't part of his approach, and his initial approach was working so well that he didn't think to do anything to manufacture a finish. And the, that kind of hurt him in the Izzy fight, because if he was just able to change the level of his rear kick, or if he was able to uh, really just change the level of his offense and stop headhunting, then he could have had a lot more success. So, he's a strategically limited fighter, but nonetheless, one of the best fighters in the sport. So, you gotta take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. Um, and I kind of thought, like, the improvements that Marvin Vittori has made as a striker and with his defense and stuff, all, all it really did was, like, limit the pace of a fight that he was still just losing really hard when what Vittori needed to do was, like, make this ugly and... Yeah, Vittori needed to be more dangerous. His face, but yeah, but that's the thing. He's not a hitter, and he was getting pieced up at range because Rob is so much quicker than him and just, like, a better striker. And whenever he crashed into the clinch, Rob would just stuff the takedowns and be back into open space. Because, as I said, these are just the guys that Rob is built to absolutely clown. He has no, he has no problem handling the physicality of huge muscle men. People who who can match him for speed and craft on the inside and and people with like really pronounced reach advantages that that can make him feel uncomfortable at distance that give Rob trouble. But like, you know, he had no problem with the physicality of Yoel Romero. It was when Yoel Romero landed some sneaky shit that he that he got into that fight. And and Vittori, he has a uh that a very weird thing that's not that uncommon, but it it seems counterintuitive. But he's such a technique nerd for focusing on his stance and his his control of of technique that he actually doesn't hit hard. Like if he just winged some shit, he would have more finishes based on just his like aggression. Because I- imagine if he threw with the ferocity of Paulo Costa rather than of Marvin Tor. He would actually be able to hit and kind of give Izzy a hard fight because he's just durable enough to eat shit and keep going. Yeah, I don't know who I heard say this the other day, but someone, I heard someone say, Marvin Vittori pushes his punches where Rob Whitaker throws them. Yeah, and, and Vittori has always kind of had this issue where though he's not a fluid mechanical puncher he does have very rigid technique he he keeps what he's doing always and doesn't really overextend very much and he's normally has his feet under him but not in a way that leads to being a consistent power hitter you know a, a guy like calvin cater will overthrow a punch because a lot of the time you know having good mechanics makes you hit harder but throwing with intensity makes you hit even harder than throwing with good mechanics so Marvin Vittori just needs to kind of sell out for offense is what I'm saying. It seems counterintuitive to analysis, but that's what he needs to do to be a threat against a lot of matchups that are guaranteed losses for him at this point because he doesn't have dynamicism to be able to win a matchup like this. Like, Marvin Vittori is fast enough and powerful enough, in theory, that he could hurt Robert Whitaker if he finds a moment or gets a little lucky. But because he doesn't have that, it was a guaranteed that he guarantee he would lose because there's no way that he's actually going to hurt Robert Whitaker. He's not a clean enough counterpuncher. He doesn't have offense that is particularly difficult for Rob to navigate. He doesn't have good defense. He's was honestly very hittable by the the two aspect of the the one two right high kick. 
Like, Rob didn't even have to go to the high kick very much in the later rounds because the right hand was just there. Like, the setup punch he was using to set up the high kick was landing so clean that he was hurting Vittori. So, Vittori needs to go to a gym that's going to make him just throw with more reckless abandon. Because he has the chin to be a very aggressive brawler, but he tries to fight too technical. So, if he's losing a fight against someone that's really just flatly better than him and can maintain it. I don't know, well, I don't know what him. MMA gym is going to make him meaner than Kings. Kings makes you really insistent about throwing body kicks and going forward, but they don't make you a hitter. Like, even RDA kind of has that issue, but it's just to a lesser extent because he's a lot more explosive and just flatly more cultured as a striker. So he's not and thinking about it And has spent a bunch much. of time with Jason Perillo at this point. Yeah, yeah. Like, he, he has... Factor. And then Calvin Gaslam is just more explosive, and he enjoys his own things that are kind of independent of Kings. And he's like very a fast nice to one too. as well. Yeah, yeah, he's very quick and he's small, and he knows he has to put authority on strikes or else people aren't going to respect him. So Marvin Vittori just has deficits that he needs to work against uh, by going to a gym that's going to make him fight like an idiot because he fights too smart for how dumb he is. Uh, Nasadine Imovov won a decision over Joaquin Buckley uh, by kind of tepidly outfighting and wrestling him for a couple of rounds. Buckley kind of got tired from uh, fighting like an idiot. And uh, then in the third round, his coach went insane at him and he uh, spent the whole third round just like chasing Imovov down. Uh, but uh, and, and he just couldn't quite get the finish. So once again, Buckley uh, loses, but uh, wins my heart. I don't know why I like walking Buckley. I get it. I feel like he has a lot more potential than he does effective potential, I guess. Like he, he doesn't really showcase his potential, but he's had fights in the past where it's like, oh, you know, he's a, a good body hitter. He hits very hard, and he's able to kind of maneuver with his head movement to get into the pocket and land against people with dramatic size differences. And it didn't feel like he was at that much of a disadvantage, even though in reality he looked like he was three weight classes lower than Imovov. But, you know, he, he didn't make it look like that in the third round. Yeah, my working theory about Buckley for a while is that just been that he's just, like, such a doer. And he will, he will just, like, go to a bunch of gyms and just pick up just, like, random... MMA skills and just do them without any kind of strategic application at all. So just like where he's at <clears throat> and who he's training with will massively affect the just selection of techniques that he decides to go to in a fight. Um, and it really seemed in this fight that he looked, you know, his coach just had him go out there and do MMA and be like, yeah, box and do takedowns. And, you know, you know, he's really been investing in like offensive wrestling that he's just like not that technically well versed in and goes for ridiculously explosive setups and then just gets tired and then realizes that he has to strike. And he is, and yeah, after two rounds of that, his coach was like, oh, fuck, you got to go out there and win. And he did what he should have been doing the the entire fight, which was just like putting combinations together and you know throwing away shots to to land, to get on the inside and land the big shots against the guy with the big reach and height advantage. Um, so it it, it, it was frustrating. 
Yeah. Because also Berkeley has this thing where because he got a, a silly spin kick KO, he thinks he's like a really dynamic kicker and will just spend way too much time, like way too far away from his opponent, just like winging left high kicks at them when he should be getting on the inside, shoe shine in the body. Yeah, Buckley also has the issue of being really fast and explosive, but waiting until he's tired to be able to fight with the full extent of his skill set. Like, he'll fight really well in the third round whenever all of his athleticism is kind of diminished through getting exhausted. Whereas if he just started fighting from the first round as like that well, he would be a knockout hitter that's finishing people in the first round, or at least setting himself up for better success in the later rounds because of his body attrition. But he doesn't start going to the body until later in the fight, or at least in the midway point. He doesn't really find uh, many counters or, or you know, have any good positional success until later on whenever he's thinking about every exchange more. He, he kind of just lets himself wait to, to fight well instead just using, oh, I'll, I'll fence at range with the guy until I'm tired, and then when I'm tired, I'll really up the intensity. And it's just it just doesn't really make sense, and it's kind of against is he's he's just working against himself by not starting the fight from a feeling as if he's at a, at a deficit he fights better whenever he's behind but he's not really putting himself in that mindset before the fight so it, it's just very awkward and uh though he has potential to be a very good fighter he just doesn't really showcase it the way that he could and you really have to watch his full career progression to see why he has potential. Because otherwise, if you just watch this fight, you'd be like, oh, well, this guy's just not very good. Yeah, and he should probably just go down to welterweight. Yeah, he's not a large middleweight. I feel like he might be a little too dense to make welterweight. But if he can make it, he would be a physical force because he's strong enough to compete with large middleweights. And he hits pretty hard, and you don't have to have that much of a skill set difference between welterweight and middleweight to be uh, effective. I think he'd still be fast. Um, Maybe, probably faster. Yeah, and he's short, but he he has reach, which would be more pronounced at welterweight. And yeah, I I think he'd just be an absolutely terrifying athlete at the weight if he could make it comfortably, which, you know, he doesn't... I know he's he's a very dense lad. But I don't imagine he cuts tremendous amounts to get to 185. Yeah, it could be that it's just more effective for him to stay at 185 because I feel like if his chin regresses going down a weight, that could be a large issue. Because his chin isn't anything crazy, but he's only gotten hurt by pretty large middleweights, or, or except Kevin Holland, who's just a very tall middleweight, which is a separate issue that Buckley has, where if he has to cover even more range, he just isn't able to. Or he gets liable to move backwards. Yeah, the Kiriko just dipped him into a perfect head kick. Like, doesn't matter how good your chin is. That's fair, yeah. You know, Kamara Usman's got a good chin, you know? Yep. Yeah, it's something where he... His chin seems good enough to where he can hang with middleweights, and I feel like if he goes down to 170, his chin would get tested, plus someone that's already beat him is there, and they would definitely make the rematch with him and Kevin Holland, and I think Kevin Holland would just knock him out at 170. Again, so uh, I mean, I mean, yeah. Um, speaking of Alessio De Kirico, uh he had a few rounds of uh, tepid middleweight kickboxing with Roman Kopilov, who uh, 
came out on top because he had a decent southpaw jab and left body kick. And uh, by the third round, just was really starting to bother Takiriko with the body kicks. And Takiriko was just like conceding more space and dropping his hands more and uh, just got banged out with a bunch of left straights and right hooks up against the cage. Yeah, it it wasn't anything insane. It was more just Roman landed on the target at a certain point. He didn't really have to put that much authority on the shots. It was mm-hmm. late in the Solid fight. Solid performance, though. Takiriko is not easy to finish. Definitely not easy to finish, and it shows uh, restraint on Roman's part that he didn't just go crazy going for the finish. He just put his hands on the target and got the finish. And yet, uh, still look more urgency than he's had in uh, previous UFC performances. So good yep. for him. He's, co- he's coming along well. Yeah, uh, I missed uh, the next fight because I was making dinner. But uh, Charles Jordan versus Nathaniel Wood was a good ass fight, and um, I think I really undersold Nathaniel Wood's skill set last week and his ability. Just like his defense and his craft in the clinch and uh, his wrestling ability to just be able to like, uh, uh, and also just his counter punching and just being able to string all these things together to mostly, you know, have have a close competitive fight, but still mostly neutralize Charles Jordan and stop him from ever like really snowballing and taking, taking over the fight and beating him reasonably convincingly. Yeah, I think it was impressive by Wood to be able to handle the size difference because though Jordan's a pretty small uh, featherweight, he was still larger, like pretty noticeably. Uh, I think it's yeah. Wood is little for this weight. He's like a lot of his athletic attributes still have translated well to the weight in the matchups that he's had, but it's worrying if he has to fight some of the some of the really big lads in the division. Definitely, and I think it spelled out an issue for Jordan where. Him being a small featherweight is kind of an advantage uh, scale-wise because when he's fighting someone taller than him, he can find avenues to victory by just utilizing being shorter. But if there aren't massive discrepancies, whether it's in his favor or not inherently in his favor, like a size difference can be in the Shea Burgos fight, he just does better if there's some big difference. So... If he's a lot shorter than you, he can fuck you up in the clinch because he can utilize being shorter. Or if he's a lot taller than you, he can utilize his range and his countering ability. But he's not... Or, or if you're just a lot slower than him, you know, he can handle that. But he, if you're somewhat parodied him physically and you're just a little bit better in a few avenues, he can't navigate uh, like being able to win on depth in a certain phase. Like, he's a more deep clinch fighter than Nathaniel Wood, but Wood's more consistent. So Wood was just able to, like, kind of fend him off and then find parts in the clinch that he could win in, opposed to uh, Jordan, who kind of got stuck on certain things, like trying to knee in the clinch and just get short offense off. Yeah, and uh, Jordan often relies on kind of... um speed and going first because he's just not no great shades defensively anywhere so Nathaniel Wood just being like uh, noticeably quicker than him and being able to like counter his kicks when he was on one leg with like a good straight punches and like, kicking out the standing leg whenever he went for the left high kick Um, plus the fact that whenever they were in the clinch for extended periods of time Wood 
would just get a cheeky little inside trip and end up on top and then just like burn a bunch of time there. Um, yeah, just all all of these things. Yeah, they just really kept Jordan from from ever like driving that wedge where he where he like builds into a, a fight and really starts to snowball his offense. He didn't give it to Wood easily, and and the third round was just like a really high pace of just like just like sick little uh, in fighting tactics and stuff. Did you like the sequence where they just like traded doing Muay Thai trips on each other a bunch of times? Yeah, I love that. I, I feel like Jordan has too much of an issue with needing you to give him the opportunity to scramble because he was he's very easy to take down if you time him because he doesn't really fight it all that much because he doesn't want to waste the energy to try and to defend something that he's already dead to rights on. So whereas yeah, he also generally needs to like adjust to like like he needs to figure out takedown defense over the course of the fight and figure out what the the opponent's entries are. Like he just got absolutely smushed by Shane Burgos for two rounds. And then in in the third round was just like way more like cognizant of the hand position and was just keeping the clinch positions where he wanted them. Yeah, and whereas someone who was later on the card in Robert Whitaker is just flat out good at takedown defense, even if you've got him dead to rights on an entry, Jordan will just kind of let you get the takedown if you get the entry good enough. So and then if you just take him down into a position that's hard to get out of freely, he'll just kind of stay there too long. And, and give up time that he could be, he not even could be, he needs to be utilizing to get the finish because he's a very finished first fighter and he doesn't have the dynamic athleticism to just decide I'm going to go kill this guy in the last minute and put power on him and have that be a win condition. He needs to find moments and that requires a little bit of patience and if you're giving away time on the on bottom that you could be urgently trying to get up to your feet then you're you're just fighting a losing strategy. There, there's not much to do if you're giving up two or three minutes of a round that you could have been using, or you really needed to have to be able to run a patient countering game whenever you want to get finishes. Because the only way that he gets finishes is if you give him a little bit of space to see where he gets the shots off. Otherwise, he's just going to throw a bunch of attrition, and he's not enough of a power hitter to fuck someone up with attrition. That's why he didn't get the finish on Shane Burgos is because he needed another couple rounds of that because attrition needs to build up. Whereas he really gets to his good attrition and effective attrition later in a fight whenever he's at a deficit, which is just not ideal for a cohesive winning strategy. And it's why he's dropping decisions sometimes against people he doesn't finish. And as a finisher, you really have to factor in what if I don't get the finish into your strategy. Because otherwise, you won't have as many wins as you could. It sounds very reductive, but it's it's how it is. You have to be trying to fight with the potential to win a decision, even if you don't get the finish, as a finish first fighter. And Jordan doesn't do that. Good fight though, and Jordan still should have won that decision against Shane Burger. So definitely, it do what it be. Uh, but yeah, it was, a, it was a solid fight, and I don't know what the future holds for Nathaniel Wood at featherweight. But uh, fuck it, just book him against Edson Barboza because it would look funny. And uh, before that, Magomedov dusted Soltzfus by front kicking him, and then kind of tepidly just putting punches in his face until he got the finish. Yeah, he uh, hurt Stolzfus 
with the front kick to the face and like backed him up to the cage. And I think Solskjaer tried to get in on like a shitty takedown entry and Magomedov just like uppercutted him. It was what, a 19 second fight? Yeah. Um, Nasrat Hackprest beat John McDessie. Another one that I got pretty wrong. Um, just because Nasrat kind of mostly refused to exchange with John McDessie and just kind of like forced McDessie to chase him down with kicks. McDessie couldn't really like use his jab to get on the inside because uh, Hackprest was just being uh, southpaw and way bigger than him and having uh, foot speed and uh, staying far away, staying really far away and work, working behind his own like one, two and uh, did drop McDessie in the second round as he like got McDessie, like really started to get McDessie chasing him and he like stepped in with a with a vintage McDessie uh, spinning back fist and got dropped but like Nasrat just didn't push the finish at all um and so yeah uh I guess good performance from Nasrat considering I didn't think he was going to win this fight but I still just I don't know what you're expecting from uh you know someone who just you know just barely scraped by John McDessie who's a very solid technical fighter but he is one of the oldest smallest guys at lightweight I'm 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 still just not sold on Nasrat Hackprest uh, Faraz Yam had a solid performance against Mikhail Figlak. He's clearly been improving a lot. Benoit Saint-Denis destroyed a jiu-jitsu guy with bad defense, just walked him down and bombed on him. Uh, Christian Quinones had a good debut, uh, knocked out Khalid Taha after just like... Yeah, he, he landed the most predictable right-hand counter I've ever seen in my life. I was, that was nice. I though. was watching it actively thinking, huh, Taha is really vulnerable to a right hand right now whenever he he tries to close distance and then he got knocked out by it so. yeah and you know it was a it was it was nice nice work by Quinones to just like stay positionally responsible behind his jab and like really make uh Taha overextend as he was trying to chase him down just caught him coming in with a crisp right straight yeah and uh Stephanie Egger Got a rear naked choke. She's good at jiu-jitsu. That'll happen. That was the Paris card. It was pretty good. Yeah, now we'll be talking about UFC 279, headlined by uh, Kamzat Shamaya versus Nate Diaz. So, Christian, before you explain to me why Nate Diaz is going to uh, knock out Kamzat Shamayev in the fifth round, can you first explain to me why is this fight happening? Uh, because the UFC wants Chimaev to capitalize on the seeming uh, unkillable underdog spirit in Diaz that is there, definitely, but it's not there in the droves that they act as if it is, because he he has been shut out multiple times before, just not recently. So I mean, recently as well. Well, yeah, I mean, recently he's been shut out, but it was, like, shut out in a fight where he still showed his underdog spirit and got a knockdown. So, and he got robbed by the doctor against Masvidal. 
Yeah, and the there's just enough plausible deniability to where someone that doesn't watch many Nate Diaz fights can be like, oh, this guy is always in it, even though he's had many fights where he isn't always in it. Uh, I, I feel like the biggest issue for Diaz in this fight is that Kamaev isn't southpaw, and Diaz has a really consistent uh, sneaky one-two that he'll land at some point against every southpaw except uh, RDA, who just easily navigated that one threat. His RDA was just destroyed Nate Diaz the whole time. Yeah, but, you know, the UFC's expecting Kamaev to nuke Diaz, and I think that's a very fair expectation, or at least, you know, grapple dominate him, because he's dramatically stronger, and the Diaz brothers are not known for their wrestling. So... But what if Nate gets a triangle... Yeah, what what I am picking for Nate is, uh, despite expecting Kamaev to... I'm expecting things to go to plan for the UFC, but I'm going to do the subversive pick and say Nate Diaz is actually going to hang in long enough to where Kamaev starts looking bad because he's going to think he has to worry about uh, gassing, or it, he's not going to finish Diaz as quickly as he's expecting to, and then he's going to be like, wait, shit, what if this guy actually is just hard to finish, and I can't finish this guy? So then he'll kind of get in his own head and then get beaten up. I don't think Chimaev thinks that way. I think Chimaev's going to see a showcase for what it is, and I think he's going to beat Nate Diaz whatever way he decides to. I think he's going to try to, but it's not going to be as simple as that, and he's actually going to go into the second round. Instead of doing what someone that in his position should do, which is just think, oh, this guy's durable. Okay, I'll just finish him this round then. I think he might be like, oh, fuck, okay, never mind, I need to actually pace myself and try and win a decision against this guy, or give myself room to win a decision and not gas. Because Kamaev got very tired against Gilbert Burns in a barn burner, and Gilbert Burns is known for gassing. So, what if he gets in his own head after one round of not being able to finish Diaz, and then is like, shit, this guy actually is hard to finish. So now I have to lower my volume enough to actually give Diaz room to win the matchup. What if he just finishes Nate, though? I mean, that's like plausible. It's what I'm expecting to happen, but I'm not going to pick it because it's boring. I guess it's still impressive to finish Nate Diaz, I guess. Yeah, he still hasn't been finished just like immediately since Josh Thompson. Yeah, and, you know, people always see the highlight of that. They don't remember that Nate ate the same head kick like five times before he got finished in that fight. Yeah. <laughs> like like he's never he's never actually just been like decked by a singular technique in one instant. I mean like, well, yeah, I mean he also got pretty close in the Jorge Masvidal fight, I guess. I mean he got pretty close in the Connor fight, it was just fine. Mm-hmm. Like Nate Diaz has better recovery than he does a chin, but his chin's also pretty crazy and Kamai he is old. Um and there's reason to believe that he could just fall off a cliff enough to where Kamaev's going to go up and kill him. But Kamaev had a lot of troubles uh, handling Gilbert Burns, uh, which Gilbert Burns is a better fighter in like a completely different style matchup to... And in his prime. Yeah, in, and but, in his prime. But also, uh, uh, I don't know, he's good at jiu-jitsu and he off-put Kamaev's grappling. And also is a former lightweight, and nobody gave Gilbert Burns any chance in that fight. You know, you, you've st- like Chimaev's entry to the UFC was incredibly impressive, but it made him look better than he is. Yeah, there's still context to the fact that he only took one punch in those four fights or, or whatever it was. You know, you- yeah, it was Chimaev's like fifth fight or fourth fight in the UFC before he fought someone that wasn't explicitly a can for him to knock over. 
you know, the first fight in the UFC, we had Gerald Mishart win uh, aging pretty well, but you know, yeah. John Phillips and Reese McKee, I think, you know, if anything, I would say if, uh, it would be embarrassing if Kamayev did get hit by either of those guys. I agree. And, you know, Gerald Mishart is a fantastic fighter, but also he's susceptible to getting buzzed in the first round and he, he's been finished many times. So if you just kind of roll the dice a couple hundred times, it lands on him knocking out Mearshart in 15 seconds. It wasn't that wasn't that long after he just also got decked in the first round by Ian Heinish. So, yeah, you know. it, it's not indicative of Kamayev being this insane hitter that people were starting to think he was after that one fight. Because then he wasn't able to finish Gilbert Burns, who has been finished multiple times at this point. Though he has a good chin, he's still finishable, and he's a lot smaller than Kamayev, but Kamayev wasn't able to get the matchup. Uh, that clear for him because really just There's an argument for, no, for Gil winning that fight. Gil just had too much fighting spirit, you know, <laughs> and Nate Diaz has no lack in fighting spirit. So yeah. And if, and you know, it, there's always like, whenever you see these just like unstoppable wrecking machines coming up, there's always that kind of moment in their careers where someone either just like, doesn't roll over as easily as the other guys they've been fighting or is just like too big, you know, like Khabib versus T-Bow. It was just like, oh, fuck, this guy's just really fucking strong. I, I, I wasn't expecting this. Definitely. And Nate Diaz, I, I will say the first thing that I'm actually going to say about the skill matchup, he's good at jujitsu. And if uh, Kamayev is not as he's insistent He's been smushed about- by good top players before, though. He's oh, good yeah. at jujitsu, but, but like... I, I, with the caveat that <laughs> those are people that are good at neutralizing someone with that type of jujitsu game, whereas we haven't seen that from... Uh, Kamayev, so we don't know if he is able to smush that type of jiu-jitsu matchup. That is true. Like, RDA is specifically a very good jiu-jitsu, jiu-jitsu top player, so it, you know, it makes sense for him to just like not have an issue in that matchup. And we've seen Kamayev versus Hermanson, but that was in a wrestling match where Hermanson wasn't able to you know, leverage choke threats or you know, play with his guard very much at all. So maybe Kamayev sucks ass also, the fact that he just easily knocked out Gerald Mearshart, maybe he just didn't want to have to deal with the jiu-jitsu. Yeah, like, there, he always has urgency, but he normally will throw a body kick and then a takedown. Yeah, and also Gilbert Burns just being, like, good at jiu-jitsu, you know, was a big part of just being able to keep him in that, keep himself in that fight and, you know, get it to, get it to the moments that he needed to make it as close as it was, you know, rather than... Uh, just being able to have his way with Gil in any phase of the fight. So, and, and that's the thing. Gil used his explosiveness when grappling, like in the aspect where he, or the part of the fight where he kicked Kamayev off of him. But Nate Diaz, despite not being able to do that, he might be able to, like, you know, X guard trip him or some shit, or X guard sweep him, or he might be able to, to do something neat to come up on the back if, if Kamayev like zigs when he should zag so there's reasonable enough expectation that nate diaz is gonna make kamayev look not great but still lose but i don't know it's just more predictable to be like oh kamayev's gonna be the guy that cracks nate's chin because nate's old and kamayev is like gonna come out with a fuckload of intensity that being said I'm picking Nate because why not? There's no consequences. I'm not losing money if I pick him. I'm, it's just fun. 
Yeah, also, uh, you know, you say it's like uh, bad for Nate that Chemayev isn't a southpaw. Um, we also haven't seen Chemayev deal with like a southpaw jab. Nope. We, Chemayev, we don't know how he deals with someone that's actually a, a genuinely good boxer from yeah, southpaw. Yeah, Nate Diaz is not... Yeah, Nate Diaz is not a big welterweight, but he's got reach. Yeah, and no matter what you make fun of Diaz, the the reason we're making fun, a lot of people make fun of him. We aren't necessarily, but the reason a lot of people are is because he's slow as fuck, and he's really old, and his game is kind of outdated. But that being said, he's a really good boxer in in a vacuum, and he's had a lot of success against good fighters using his boxing and his grappling. Yeah, Kamaev's not like a big low kicker or no, anything. No, yeah, Kamaev doesn't have a particularly uh, direct, easy style matchup against him. It's just the assumption of the momentum and the age difference and why they're setting up the fight. The size difference. Yeah, the size difference. Like a lot of uh, factors that we don't even know how they're going to play out in the- in practice. We just kind of have an idea of how it works in theory. So, like, Kamayev should go th- and blow through him, but, you know, Connor also should have blown through him because we didn't know that he had the cardio liabilities at that point that we do now. And Kamayev has had a fight where he got really tired against Gilbert Melendez, and Gilbert Melendez mostly won his durability despite being known... Or, or Gilbert Burns, yeah. Uh, despite... So you're, like, this fight is getting you, like to where you're having you're getting different completely different eras of MMA just mixed up. Yeah, yeah, it happens. That's what this fucking card is. Well, that's that's what the fight is cuz it's a guy yeah, that that's was what I mean. the big shit in like 2014 or whatever. Now fighting a guy who's the hotness in 2022. But Nate Diaz has some avenues to victory. So like we've seen Gilbert Burns just kind of hang in on being tough. Maybe the power uh, power difference is enough to where he like that's the determining factor in why he was able to hang in that long. But Nate Diaz, I don't know if you can trust Nate Diaz to do anything. It's eat shit and keep going. That being said, I am going to pick Chimaev by first round finish. That's respectable and makes sense. With like whichever way he decides to like either by knockout on the feet or or just like. Just taking him down and playing the bongos on his face. Yeah, I'm gonna say Diaz throws like four straights around to the body that get underplayed by the commentary, and then it's or overplayed by the commentary maybe, and that somehow builds up to Chimaev being gassed enough to get finished in like the fourth. I'm gonna say Chimaev knocks Diaz out with the head kick that he throws away to set up the takedown. That's fair, and there is a chance that Chimaev just hurts Diaz and then gets mount and finishes him with pitter-patter ground and pound. Uh, not pitter-patter, because Kamayev does not throw light ground and pound, but he just throws him with, like, uh, finishes uh, him with attrition. Bongos. Yeah, just, like, bopping his face he, he, over he, he, he doesn't. He doesn't tend to go for, like, single, really clean, accurate ground and pound shots. He just, he just likes to smash. Yeah, like, there's it, it a good chance he'll just pound him out. But, in a, I think, way more likely to be depressing fight. Mm, uh, probably more depressing, yeah. Um, yeah, Tony Ferguson's fighting the leech at welterweight. Li Zheng Liang? Yeah, Tony Ferguson's supposed to get knocked out by uh, a right hand in this fight. But, you know. But it might be a left hook. That, yeah. But if they go to the ground, uh, Li Zheng Liang, not great at jiu-jitsu. Tony Ferguson definitely regressed at jiu-jitsu and small for welterweight. He's... 
he could get some wily shit. I don't know. He looked pretty good against Chandler, so he you did have to look give pretty good credit. against Chandler. And in it, and and then that's what you know gives everyone this weird kind of you know uh, just internal conflict with Tony Ferguson at this point because you know I talked about this at the, when we talked about the Chandler fight, but after the Darius fight, I was just at peace with just the idea that Tony Ferguson was never going to look good again, and then he pretty much looked like the Tony of old in the first round against Chandler, and then got absolutely hideously decked in a way that we've never seen in Tony Ferguson's career before. Maybe Sachs. I love Tony Ferguson. Um, <clears throat> there's so reasonable enough uh, evidence to believe that Tony Ferguson could be in good form sometimes still. He's not just in his old man form now. Like He could look good some fights. And maybe at welterweight he'll be better. How long ago was it, even was it, that he got knocked out and was unconscious for like five minutes? Not that long ago. It wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago if we talked about it. Yeah, it's not that long ago, but simultaneously, he's at welterweight now. I don't know, maybe his chin will get a, a second wind and he'll be able to eat shit a little bit. But I hope so, because like I say, he did look good in that first round against Michael Chandler and kind of... Um, I think my theory with Tony Ferguson at this point was that all of that time that he said he didn't spar, uh, I believe him. Because, you know, that was during the whole period of Tony Ferguson's career where he was famous for just eating shit in the first round and then entering the fucking Matrix and just, like, duking everything in the pocket and fucking people up in the second round. So, and you go back, you know, he says that he stopped sparring after the T-Bow fight. You go back and watch him back in those days and he was just fucking wiping people out in the first round back when he was just like aggressive boxer puncher Tony Ferguson like holy fuck someone uh, uploaded just uploaded a compilation of just Tony Ferguson winning all of his ultimate fighter fights by knockout I was just you watching just like oh my god Tony Ferguson used to be athletic as fuck um but it, it, it seemed like you know he he just wanted to save himself the mileage in the gym and just like believed in his recovery and ability to get back into fights you know, you know to 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 carry him when he wasn't just like dialed in from having a whole camp of sparring and then that stopped working and he just was finding himself a step behind in every fight so you know he started sparring hard again and came out you know looking like the Tony of old, doing doing good shit, you know, was was dialed in and knew what to do from the first bell, but just got fucking sparked out. And then there's also just like, maybe if he had gotten hit, hit by that front kick the night he fought like RDA, it still would have sparked him out. Maybe that wasn't even his chin being regressed because it was a fucking brutal shot. But 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 his chin's definitely regressing after that knockout. Yeah, and how likely are you to assume if you're Tony Ferguson, oh, this guy that's five foot six is gonna front kick me in the mouth when he doesn't throw front kicks? Like it's Jeez. it's kind of a gaslam left high kick against Izzy. Of <laughs> you get hit by something sometimes because the guy hasn't thrown it before, so you don't have reasonable expectation to assume you're gonna get hurt by it. So you just don't defend it, really. He just kind of, like, lunged forward and ate shit while his head was hunched over. 
So here's the thing: the the leech can be something of a slow starter. Um, you know, he he takes a while to like adjust to his opponent's offense and like and and just like the distance and all of this stuff. So, uh, yeah, Tony Tony could have a good first round, but the leech, um, he, he he's just like he's just like actually like a he's just a solid boxer. And he has a great chin and he hits really hard. And he's just fucking really dangerous to exchange with. The Leech's main issues have either been people who can just out-wrestle him or there was just that fight against Neil Magny where he couldn't get past the jab and every time he did, Neil Magny had the clinch to insulate himself. I mean, Tony Ferguson's got reach, but he's not Neil Magny. You know, it's, it's going to be feeling a lot worse when he's touching up the leech at those ranges that than it did against Neil Magny, but um, I just I just like Tony Ferguson. He's going to exchange with the leech, and that's just not what what, what you do against that guy. And I, I I don't trust Tony Ferguson at this point in his career, even if he is more dialed in with just like solid technical sparring to to be able to see the shots coming to bring out the old Tony Ferguson defensive tricks or to have the chin to take them when when he gets hit and you know and and to be able to have the confidence have the confidence in his chin to use that to to make defensive adjustments as the fight goes on so i i'm picking li jingliang by second round knockout and it makes me sad i think it's a little depressing that were this prime tony ferguson he would pretty much guaranteed win the match but it would be a banger but now I think yeah. the first time he gets banged, he's going to get knocked out. I am going to pick Tony Ferguson because we're on an underdog picking. We're on a massive underdog picking streak right now, or I am. Uh, not for success, well, you, you, but you in didn't doing pick it. No, like, I mean, this one is crazy because I'm picking Nate Diaz. That's a, that counts as like seven underdog picks. Yeah, that's that's like three Tai Vasas. Yeah, and Tony Ferguson is pretty much guaranteed to get knocked out by Li Jingliang, so I'm going to pick Tony by up elbow at the end of the first. Because you know what? Tony Ferguson's fucking ill. Tony Ferguson is fucking ill. And don't let his recent, you know, not even his recent form, just this unfortunate losing streak to elite lightweights, uh, let you forget that Tony Ferguson is a great fighter. Um, particularly, uh, actually, uh, Hacks of the Fight Site did an episode of the Fight Site podcast when it was a thing. I think this was when fucking Danny Martin was doing this. This was like two years ago. I think it was just after Tony Ferguson lost to Justin Gaethje. And they just did like a, a kind of career retrospective on just the kind of whole like arc and context of Tony Ferguson's career and you know, what his style actually was. And it's, you know, it's, it, I think it's still relevant today. And if, if you're an appreciator of Tony Ferguson, you should, you should go back and listen to it. Um, in a fight that is not depressing and is actually very good, Kevin Holland is fighting Daniel Rodriguez at a catch weight of 180 pounds. I guess it's just no, it was just a late notice thing because they needed something to save this card. And uh, yeah, this is a banger, uh, Christian. Why are we going to pick Kevin Holland by knockout 
um, you, you know, Danny Rodriguez is pretty good. He's a good boxer. He's a solid technician. Yeah, it's a banger, but I think that Kevin Holland's going to take him down and have more success on the ground than he's expecting to. <laughs> and then he's going to finish him with ground and pound. Daniel Rodriguez is hard to take down. Or, you know, if they get in those positions, it could be a sub. Like, it could be. Good at yeah, I, I think Daniel Rodriguez is a lot better than we're gonna sound like we're giving him credit for in this. Uh, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna give Daniel Rodriguez credit in, in, in a minute. That, 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 that's why I'm saying you know that's, that, that's why I'm not uh, not, not just uh, saying outright why Kevin Holland is gonna knock him out. Yeah, Kevin Holland is larger, more dynamic, just flatly, and he. Kinda doesn't have particularly particular difficulty with any matchup that isn't just someone that can wrestle him. And D Rod, we don't have much reason to expect him to go for a wrestling approach. And I think Kevin Holland's large enough and good enough at initial takedown entries to get some good success and at least threaten the grappling and probably come up with a knee or something. That's the type of really standard adjustment that Kevin Holland will make if he's has the wrestling ability. Like he'll just faint the clinch and then you kind of duck trying to like post to make sure he doesn't grapple you and then he'll just knee you in the mouth or be really long or he'll be like oh I'm entering and then he'll just do a really long jab straight yeah and it just works better at welterweight because he's big and strong at welterweight yeah the dynamics of the physicality difference are just more and now he's fighting a welterweight but doesn't have to cut to cut as much because it's a catchweight I mean you have to think this catchweight also massively benefits Kevin Holland Definitely, because at this point he's just not even cutting weight. Likely, he probably walks around like one eighty three. Yeah, he's always been um, a kind of small middleweight, and now he's he's not even that large of a welterweight because it's not a huge cut for him. Yeah, but um, this uh, still stands to be an absolute banger because Kevin Holland is uh, a he's a fucking lunatic. He's a good fighter, but he just like. He can get pretty wacky in the pocket, and as I said, D-Rod is just a, a solid technician who is a, like very solid positionally like in terms of setting up offense, but I'm, I'm just like, I'm not sure about how he's going to like manage this kind of reach disparity. If Kevin Holland actually fights behind his reach, you know, I think the best thing for Kevin Holland would just be to... Uh, use his like use jabs and uh, straight kicks to like kind of strand D-Rod and really get him chasing him because D-Rod's like form and defense can fall a little fall apart a little bit when he's like really just trying to chase someone down you know we saw against a Dwight Grant he pretty much got finished because he just like ran in with a big wild overhand left and got got caught coming in and you know, showed his toughness to be able to get back in the fight and almost immediately get the finish as soon as, like, Dwight Grant kind of couldn't seal the deal and took his eye off the ball. But it, it, it's, it's, still, it's still just, like, a worrying thing to, to see happen. And, yeah, I just think, yeah, Kevin Holland, you know, if he fights long and actually tries to use some of his, like, weird innovator defensive tricks then I think it's just going to be a really it's just going to be a really frustrating matchup for Rodriguez to to navigate um but also if they start getting wacky in the pocket Kevin Holland is as you say was just like more dynamic and hits harder and has a better chin probably just end up hurting Daniel Rodriguez in those exchanges yeah Kevin Holland is 
People act like he's not trustworthy, even though he he just has matchups that he loses. He's pretty trustworthy if you know what his style entails. It's not that hard to pick his fights, and I think he's probably going to beat D-Rod cleanly. Yeah, how how different really is D-Rod to, like, uh, Jeff Neal? Who, like, Kevin Holland kind of just, like, bombed on, but they're just leaping at him with, like, big left hands and sidekicks. And then Irene Aldana is, is going to be fighting Mesa Chiasan. And yeah, you, you tell me about this one, Christian. Uh, there's a good chance that Chiasan is going to be given the space to look pretty good. Just, you know, peppering her with a jab, doing long kicks, and staying out of range. But Irene Aldana is the dynamic hitting force. And if she can get in close, I think Chiasin she's going to be... does not have good defense. No, and if she gets in close, I think she's going to be able to deny the clinch enough to land short hooks while exiting the pocket. Or just power shots in general. But Chiasan should be able to get a decision if she fights really disciplined. I just don't really know if we have reason to believe that she's going to be disciplined enough. Or that... Honestly, Irene Aldana might just not have it in her anymore to be able to finish people the way that we once thought she might be able to. Because she looked, she looks really rote and unadaptable if you give her someone that's just longer than her who moves on the outside. This is a close enough matchup to the Holly Holm fight to where I'm not giving Irene Aldana a great chance of winning, though she has the room to win. Yeah, but she probably is just going to like could be able to hurt Macy Chiasan. I could also be just giving Macy Chiasan too much credit, and uh, Macy could just get beaten at range and not really pull Aldana onto the counter she'd be needing to to get win or get a win. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think she's like anywhere near as mobile or just like disciplined about sticking to that kind of fight as Holly Holm is. No, nah, but she has longer measurements and she's less old she's quite young and her style seems to be progressing in a way that Holmes never did just kind of stayed how it was so Chison has more room to be looking better than she has prior but in in ways that are going to help her not get binked by left hooks from Irene Aldana maybe uh, uh, I don't she, know she's a good clincher uh Generally, so she should be able to get something off in the clinch, uh, at least defensively, and and mitigate Aldana's offense in close. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Johnny Walker is fighting Ewan Kutalaba. Analysis is is not existent for this fight. Johnny Walker needs Just watch the 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 bangers bang. He needs to pull out some fuck shit. He cannot be on his capital T technical SPG Island bullshit this fight. Because Kutlava's just going to be running at him, just going fucking mad, just going hog wild, just being aggressive as shit. I'm going to pick Ewan Kutlava because Johnny Walker has no initiative and has no like affinity for the style that SBG are trying to like get him to develop. Um... So I th- uh, and also he's fucking bad at wrestling. So I think he's he's just gonna get smushed and taken down unless he can get back to the uh, 
just the, the Johnny Walker classic shit and just land like a fucking crazy flying knee or some shit as uh, as he wants coming in. Like that's what he needs to do. Yeah, I think the he f- needs to do a fucking spin move or a head kick or some some some, some shit. I think the fight is going to be boring and then end in Kutalaba getting an attrition ground and pound finish because it's going to be really easy for him to get the takedowns and he'll just spend rounds on top, kind of getting ground and pound off, but because they're so large, he'll eventually attrite Walker enough to get a finish. But I'm not expecting the fight to be good, though I want it to be. I'm not expecting it to be like traditionally good, but I'm expecting it to be entertaining in one way or another. That's fair. And then uh, Hakeem Dawadu, one of the Frank Julian Arosa, one um, one of the best prospects at 145 right now, going to be fighting one of the best prospect killers. But I feel like this prospect killer is a little too old and going to get knocked out by a guy that doesn't yeah. traditionally knock people out. Yeah, I have a funny feeling that this is the fight that makes Hakeem Dawadu look like a puncher or just a hit a hitter in general, just because like Julian Arosa. Um, just the fact you know he, the fact that he, he you know he's a tall guy that likes to lead with kicks and then like swing hooks in the pocket. Uh, Hakeem Dawadu's really good at defending kicks, and I just think you know he's just like a a sharp, like mechanically solid, quick and accurate puncher. When he doesn't hurt people a lot, I can just see like. I can just see him either like like parrying one of Arosa's front kicks and just head kicking him or or like or just generally shutting down Arosa's kicking offense and then getting getting him coming in wild and just like decking him with a really crisp straight punch. Uh that being said, Hakeem Dawadu did get bombed on and subbed with a guillotine by Danny Henry. That seems like some shit Julian Arosa can do. And I always want to pick Julian Arosa to dart a fool because he's just a really fun prospect killer. Um, but, and, you, you know, he has, you know, if he can really, you know, I think, like, I think Dawadu's a serviceable defensive wrestler and Julian is not like a ferocious top player or anything, but he's like pretty good about just like wearing on you with a high pace of takedowns and forcing you to like get too fixated on takedown defense that you like make mistakes and stand up into jokes and stuff um but he normally has to like normally normally has to get into a banger that he can take over to to get that kind of fight and i kind of think Dawadu's just gonna shut him out and quite possibly just finish him before it before he, he can get that kind of fight out of Hakeem. And I think Hakeem's results are a little misleading because they would make most people think that he's not that dangerous. But he's pretty ferocious in single exchanges and he hits with authority. He's not a light hitter. He just doesn't hunt finishes at all. And he's very diligent about maintaining himself even in fights that are getting pretty difficult. He tries to like the Evloev fight, he started doing really well in the third round, but he didn't force it enough to actually be able to get a finish. He just forced it enough to be able to win the round clearly and get himself back into the fight. Yeah, and whenever it started getting a, um, 
a little too dicey for Evlo Ev. He would like go back to the wrestling really hard, which was just more of a go-to that Evlo Ev has in his back pocket all the time than uh, Julian Arosa does. Definitely. And uh, Arosa is chinable, and it's at 145, not 150, which Jer- Julian Arosa would easily win. Where Julian Arosa is the undefeated champion, as we know. He can't lose at 150. But it, at 145, I think he's just going to get clipped, and then Hakeem is going to accidentally finish him by maintaining his standard game because Arosa, despite having great cardio, he does get tired just as a, the, like the nature of fighting. If you do a lot of shit, you're going to get tired eventually. And Julian Arosa is very heavy on volume, and he doesn't have that insane cardio cheat code to where I think he can maintain it if it's working. I think he'll still get tired no matter what if he starts losing. But as you said, you know, Hakeem has a, a single fight history of being dropped and then sub. And that's something Julian Rosa kind of specializes at. So, in a weird way, it's a dangerous matchup for Hakeem, but it's not a bad matchup for him at all. It, it, it's like it's dangerous in single moments, but he's just a more technically well-schooled striker than Arosa, and he's he's more athletic than Arosa. He's flatly better at Muay Thai, which is Julian Arosa's shtick, is that he's pretty good at... He's like, he's like got sneaky, like, American white guy Muay Thai tricks. And Akeem is genuinely just good at Muay Thai, objectively. Yeah, you know, Julian Arosa, he got knocked out by uh, Julio Arce. Who who got dismantled in a Muay Thai match by Hakeem Dawadu? Yeah, Hakeem's ability to counter kick is gonna cause Arosa nightmares too. Like that's just a tactical yeah. thing that's gonna show up all the time. I assume. Yeah, and it's a thing that I think is you know if that even if that doesn't just lead to a finish, which it could, is gonna walk uh, gonna end up walking Arosa into some big shots in the pocket. I agree. I'm going to pick Hakeem by second round knockout. I think I'm going to pick my first round knockout. That is fair. And then for the rest of the card, there's some decent fights, but it's... Uh, Jonathan Almeida's fighting. Uh, it seems like he got a last minute replacement. He's not fighting Shamil anymore. I don't have anything to say about that other than Jonathan Almeida's exciting. Everyone needs to watch out for him. But like whatever, we'll talk about the fight. And, and, and on fight path or on topology, it says... Anton Turkaj is the number one Nordic light heavyweight. So, whatever the fuck that means, I guess. Well, there you go. Um, and then pretty much, uh, Jay Collier is fighting uh, Chris Huggy Bear Barnett. Uh, this I, I have absolutely no technical analysis on this fight. I just want to say. Thank you to the matchmakers, because this is what you do with Huggy Bear. Why the fuck were they booking him against Martin Boudet, just a, a six foot four fridge who was just going to clinch grind him? Give him fire uh, n- another chunky chunky boy who's going to bang with him at range. Just have some some f- sloppy heavyweight dad banging action. Yeah, and all this being said, I am picking Jake Collier to beat Barnett pretty cleanly and finish him. I'm, I'm picking Barnett by spin kick. Uh, I'm going to pick him by uh, spinning sidekick to the liver. Okay, I'm going to say Jake Collier just overwhelms him by being able to box. That's fair. And then the rest of the card, there's some good fights, but we'll talk about the results afterwards. 
It's there. Whatever. This podcast is fucking long. Oh, uh, yeah. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'm going to do it in a second. If you enjoyed this podcast and all of the other great stuff that the fight site puts out, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Uh, where a pledge of just $5 gains access to both a huge library of really high-quality analytical fight content and also access to a Discord server where we have a great community of really interesting fight fans from all walks of life where we have fantastic discussions and uh, get together to watch fucking street beefs and dumb shit like that. It's a good it's a good old time. You should come hang out, support the fight site. This has been the Forbidden Technique podcast. We will catch you next week where... We will be recapping all of the good stuff from this card as well as looking forward to a Fight Night card with an actually very good and like a competitively meaningful main event in the bantamweight division between Corey Sandhagen and Song Dong. So look forward to that one. We'll see you guys later. Peace. Later. Later.